Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the podcast of podcasts. The movie fans flock to Rick Line. Line? Line. You seriously need a line right now? And Nick. Rick, well, they never come in here, so I don't remember what these guys are called. I have a question. Why did the intro guy from the very intro of the podcast keep on talking and continue to open up this episode? You have a point. He's never opened up the episode's Ever. It only took 30 plus episodes. You know, I just had a thought though. Hearing hearing that that guy, whoever that guy may be, do that same voice to open up this episode of the podcast. He's opened every episode of the podcast because he's done the intro does it count in every with, episode. Does it count with opening credits though? <laughs> yes, if the person who does the opening credits... Is the same person. Whoever that might be. Whoever that might be. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is back up and online and brought to you by a great spot to see a movie. I would know because I was there last night. Bemidji Theaters on Highway 2 just west of Bemidji. Yes, just next to the airport, just across from the airport here in Bemidji. Great place to go catch a movie. Keep in mind, they're $5 movie nights on Tuesdays. Great deal to get to go see a movie. Plus... Great opportunity then to use some deals in turn, uh, some deals, big in, deals, yeah, some bit. Well, big deals that might not be the right time to use big deals. Yeah, it, you it's a, a good time anyway. It's a good time to use a deal on food as well because they've got some great deals that you can get as well as for popcorn. Grab and soda popcorn, and you get like. free pop. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So anyway, welcome to the show. What's I'm your, Dave. I'm Dave Brooks. Yeah, I was about to ask, what's your name? <laughs> I'm Joel Hoover. It's good to be here with you. Good to come along. We've got a lot of great stuff to talk about today. We're going to go back in time a little bit. Is this to- why I don't open the show? Because I just stumble all over myself? I don't know. <laughs> I I guess, I don't know. You know how to dress it up in terms of the opening. Presentation. And presentation. I know how to Parsley dress it up. Parsley on the side. I know how to dress it up in terms of here's your table of contents. Give it guts. And show order. <laughs> I don't know. I guess that's how we give and take. Perhaps pretty good. Good team. Yes, yeah. we. I, I mean, look at us. We're learning about each other in the midst of doing this podcast. It's our thirty plus something. episode. Yeah, thirty something episode. Yeah, we're getting deep into the Roman numerals at this point with the way we're doing it. Literally, because that's how we run it with the show. Um, so we're going to go back in time to a very influential movie today and discuss it because it just had its ten year anniversary the other week. Um, You may know the movie that we're talking about if you saw the title of this episode. If you've been trying to stay in the dark on it, we'll keep you in the dark on it. But first... But first, a couple of lo- a couple of uh, newsworthy items to dive into to start the show. 
You went to go see Mission Impossible Fallout went just to last see it. night. I did. You were a part of a record-breaking opening for the franchise. Sixty-one and a half million Mission Impossible Fallout debuting with largest opening ever for the Mission Impossible movies. Now, and that's just U.S. and not yes. even world. And even still, only forty percent of the screens that are going to show it have opened. So it still has a long way to go. That's right. Now, I am a Mission Impossible TV person. Yes. Peter Graves as Jim Phelps, uh, the whole deal. I, I love the old TV series. However, you loaned me MI3, and I finally got a chance to watch one of them the other day. I skipped the first two because you told me skip the first mm, two. They're worth seeing, but if you really want, if you were you were one of the TV show fans, and you found out about the original movie, where you know, spoiler alert, Jim Phelps turns out to be a bad guy. Well, he was a staple of the show. That norked you off, and. It, Norked off a lot of fans. I think that's ridiculous. There was talk. They didn't film it, but one of the earliest scripts, Martin Landau, who was on the show, had said, you know, one of their earlier ideas was was to have all these actors come back and get killed off in the first act. And they said, no, we're not doing that. So they didn't. They just kept the Jim Phelps character, and he turned into be the bad guy. And I don't think that would have been the good way to go. So Brian De Palma directed the original, great credentials, but it wasn't wasn't a bad movie, but it, eh. MI2 was an action movie, straight up forward, you know. But then MI3 came, the one I loaned you, J.J. Abrams got involved, and it really got to what the show was about and what the, what the show is supposed to be right? in not, a lot of ways. Not just clever stunt work, incredible stunt work, as they've just progressively gotten yeah. better and better with the set pieces of it, but smart. Yeah. Smart in terms of the way that they accomplish their missions and come up with with finding solutions, impossible it's solutions. A, it's about outsmarting the bad guys. It's really it. what it's about. It's espionage. It's not James Bond. It's not Jason Bourne. But once J.J. Abrams got involved with Mission Impossible 3, they got good. And then you got into Rogue Nation and Ghost Protocol and Fallout. Progressively and better each time. They really are. It's, it's going to take me a little while to, to sleep on the most recent one as to where it'll fit in that hierarchy. But I really, really liked it. It was really good. But it was also um, much more of a sequel than any of the others. They've all been what they call bottle shows, where it doesn't matter really if you've seen what's come before. This is its own thing. The new one really has a lot of elements and characters coming back from previous movies that it helps to know what the story is, to really catch on to what's going on. So that's kind of unique for the franchise thus far, but really good. One other big... Item of note when it comes to news, and this goes back to an episode that we did Mm -hmm. a long time ago, which you can listen back to if you want to hear the genesis of this entire story, and that is the fact that the merger between the Walt Disney Company and 21st Century Fox has taken a big step forward. Shareholders from both companies approved what is going to be a $73.1 billion Mm. deal for this merger to merge 21st Century Fox into the Walt Disney Company. Um, The assets would transfer to a holding company, which is currently known as New Disney. It will contain the vast film and television libraries of both studios. This is according to Rotten Tomatoes. And the studios themselves, as well as Disney's theme parks, Fox's domestic and international cable holdings, and a lot of intellectual property is going to change hands as well. Goodness me, it's it's just a huge, huge merger that is uh, that is coming together here, um, and it's taken a big step forward. It's in your words, Dave. It's looking inevitable. Yeah, if if both companies want it to happen, 
then it's going to happen. The only thing that could step in the way might be some sort of antitrust. Um, but that usually kicks in when you've got you know a monopoly. You know, AT&T got broken up because they were a monopoly. But what percentage contains monopoly? Now, according to some estimates, um, it's either 40 or 60, and I can't remember because it's an important number to remember because one of them is over half, one of them is less than half. But I think it, we'll call it half, roughly. Half of all media content, TV, big screen, would be controlled by this new mergered company, Disney and 20th Century Fox. But it's a big enough of a number, would antitrust, anti-monopoly laws kick in? Could be an issue. Maybe. If there is going to be a hurdle left, yeah. it would, you would think it would be along the antitrust lines. But, but it's going to happen, I think. It's moving forward, though, and it's it's moving forward pretty effectively so far. If they if they got both shareholders online, that's a, a big start to it all. So first for the layman here to bring you up to speed, what does this mean and why are people against it or not against it? Uh, some people are, are for it because now you've got, just look from a comic book perspective. This will lead into our episode we're going to talk about here today. The Marvel Universe is controlled by 20th Century Fox. Um, you've also got the Marvel Cinematic Universe controlled by Disney. Well, you get the X-Men and then the Avengers controlled by 20th Century Fox and Disney now coming under the same company. Whoa, we could get a real big crossover film. Some people are excited for that. Some people not so excited for that. Think of the really cool, gritty properties controlled by 20th Century Fox. Even more recently, we'll stick with superheroes. Deadpool. You think Disney's going to have their hands involved in a Deadpool movie? I know you haven't seen them before, but they are not exactly Disney-esque. No. Let alone Alien franchise, let alone the Predator franchise, let alone all kinds of movies that are on the gritty side. Are those kind of movies going to go away? You know, and those are some great franchises and great elements. Die Hard is 20th Century Fox. If John McClane ever comes back, that's going to have to go under Disney. It would force a real change to the Disney ethos in terms of the way that they that they try to do things with their movies. But uh, unless they would set it up as a separate property and yet it's under their umbrella, but they have more leeway and, and ability to be able to do that, which I know... Some companies have, which they they're the, they have the massive tentpole name, and yet they have individual studios under that name who sometimes do a little bit more in terms of art house work or something that's a little bit different than maybe what their typical running uh, running philosophy is when yeah. it comes to movies. Maybe they would do something a little bit different along those lines, but that's only a theory. And they've done that in the past. Touchstone Pictures, it's a Disney company. You know, some people may not know that, but Touchstone hasn't really put out harder movies. They're, you know, kind of fun, but maybe slightly more geared to the adults. You know, sometimes kids will go see a movie just because it's by Disney. Well, Touchstone, what does that mean to a kid? Nothing. So they're not going to see it so the adults can see it. Right. They're going to have to come up with Touchstone Hardstone or something if you're going to do an R-rated movie. You know, you've got the new Predator movie coming out. That'll still be 20th Century Fox. But if it does well, what what then? What about Deadpool 3? It's making huge money, but that would have to come out under Disney. And will they be willing to do that, particularly a publicly traded company? Well, Disney put out this movie. I'm ne-, you know, that kind of thing. They're worried about it because it's almost more of a corporation now than anything else. That's the big question. Yeah. So that's going to be something that is going to take m- much more time to be able to actually resolve and 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 see what kind of direction some of these different entities would go. But 
the deal's taking a big step forward. So well, and the other eye on it. And the other thing is Disney's going to be coming out with their own streaming service here pretty yes. soon. It's coming up. So pretty much anything Disney, they're going to do a new Star Wars series that is going to be on the streaming service. That, like we said, is going to be about half of things because they're going to own not just the newer 20th Century Fox movies, but everything that 20th Century Fox has ever put out, and that's not a new studio. So you're talking roughly, like we said, half of all content that is and ever has been is going to be controlled by Disney. So if you've got a budget and you're only going to be subscribing to Hulu or Netflix, you will probably be going into the Disney streaming once they get it up and running because that's where it's all going to be. But then again, you've got some harder movies, 20th Century Fox. They're going to have to figure out a way to do that or... I can't fill in the because we don't know. Exactly. Yeah. So still more to be resolved. We'll continue to keep an eye on it as news comes. But again, big news that the shareholders have agreed yeah. and are moving it forward. I think it's going to happen, though. Yeah, it's, it's looking inevitable. Yeah. So what's inevitable is we've got an episode of this podcast to get into, and we want to get into our main event here of this episode today. Now, keep in mind, there are going to be some spoilers that will be in there. Mm-hmm. If you have not seen this movie yet, would highly recommend that you tread lightly for the rest of this episode. Which movie do you refer to? Which movie? Well, I've been keeping people in the dark on the movie, but oh. maybe... Th- Thanks, Dave. Maybe <laughs> maybe they know, maybe they don't, if they've seen the, uh, the title for today, um, which we have not come to a conclusion on what the title is, so we might have to get creative. But a couple, a couple of days ago, um, the, the movie World kind of took a moment to to pay homage to the fact that we were celebrating the 10-year anniversary of one of the most influential movies of this century so far, really, you'd have to say. That's true. Um, in, in terms of the comic book realm, and not just the comic book realm, this was an incredible movie in a way that went beyond just being a superhero movie. And of course, we are talking about The Dark Knight, which just celebrated its 10-year anniversary the other week. It was released in 2008. Um, 15-year-old Joel, I, I, I'm trying to think back. A 15-year-old Joel did not go to the movies as frequently as 25-year-old Joel does. I, I did not, I, and I'm trying to remember if I went and got to see The Dark Knight or not, because going to the movies did not happen often for me. Um, back when when the Dark Knight was released back in July, but think what an impact it must have made because now you're hosting a movie podcast Ex- well, with exactly. a wealth of movie yep. knowledge. And so I, I can't remember when exactly it was. I think I think it may have been when it went to DVD. Which if it was, is is such a darn shame because it's one of those movies that will go down in history as one that I wish I had gotten to see on the big screen. But I I was young. I didn't go to movies as frequently then. I didn't have a car yet. But you, know. you might. There's talk. They're not even talk. They're going to re-release it for one week only on the 10-year anniversary. I don't know if it's coming here or where the nearest theater possibility would be or even if it's even come out yet. Go look it up. But they are re-releasing it in select theaters for a one-week run only. And maybe it's already happened. Maybe it hasn't. Um, but uh, this might be your opportunity to see it. And this was one of the first times they started using IMAX cameras to capture something that was not going to be on an IMAX screen. One-week engagement starting August 24th at four IMAX theaters across North America. Hoove is putting in for time off now. Here's the bad news. New York, San Francisco, Uh. Universal City, California, Toronto. 
Toronto is almost Pittsburgh. It's almost Pennsylvania. It's almost Philadelphia. <laughs> what do you say, Viva la Toronto? Hey, let's just yeah, let's just take a trip. Why not? And they're showing it in seventy millimeter IMAX as well. What do they wouldn't open it slightly more wide? Classic, That's no point. Classic Christopher Nolan um, to go seventy millimeter IMAX. I don't know. Maybe just making it a, a de- in demand with how limited of an engagement it is. How perhaps much, I don't if know. in demand requires airline travel, you're not doing it right. Uh, any anyway, it so it came out in two thousand eight. Did you see it in theaters when it came out? Opening night. Opening night. That's how excited you were over it. Well, let me ask you this, Dave, because I remember reading about the buzz for the movie. Um, we'll get to the before the movie here in a moment, but when it came out and when you watched it, what were your initial thoughts and your initial reaction? Well, even further back than that, you know, Batman has his nemesis, just like James Bond has his. I mean, he's the Joker. Everyone knows that. Well, you had Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman, and you had Jack Nicholson do it, and they did it so well, but you always want to see that one guy come back. But the Joker dies at the end of Batman. He falls off the ladder, off the helicopter, and dies. So he wasn't coming back. Well, now they're restarting the whole thing. And one of the last shots of Batman begins at the start of the Dark Knight trilogy. He flips over the playing card. Oh, my goodness. The joke. So all right there, the hype had begun well, three years before. There's a good story behind that, and I'll get to that in a moment. That's true. So people were ready for this. People wanted this. You get to see these guys together, and Batman begins... I would almost argue really started this trend that we'll get a little more into as we go also, but people really wanted to see a different take that was going to be less surreal, I guess you could say, than the Tim Burton version that was in the 1989 Batman. Um, They couldn't wait to see it, so three years later, Heath Ledger's coming in as a Joker, and everybody... For about 15 seconds, we're listening to that voice that he was doing. Is That's going to be annoying after a while. But it still, to this day, goes down as a legendary incarnation. It lasted 15 seconds, and people didn't think it might work. And it, the guy won an Oscar for it posthumously. It really was. There's a reason we're doing a podcast about a 10-year-old movie and the influence it had. The buzz going into it was hardcore. So this was when they were still kind of doing the midnight shows on Thursday. So you'd go at... You know, maybe the midnight shows were moving up to like 10, but you didn't get little kids at those, which was fun because people that were there, they wanted to see the movie and they weren't there to mess around. So you were there to have a good time. And that place was packed, packed, grown men in Batman pajamas. And the response immediately thereafter was really good. You, I mean, you left going, wow. Yeah. You know, and there was, whether it was going to wind up being a trilogy or not, people were suspecting that was going to be the case. And a lot of times, if it is a trilogy, it's the middle part that tends to be the weakest, which in this one was the strongest. And it was really something that people were blown out of their minds walking out of. And I remember walking into, um, I think I must be thinking of another movie, but a lot of times you'll see people coming out of the movie before yours, and you can get the look on their faces. And I remember talking to somebody that had seen it just before, their different time zone or something. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And then I'm on my way in to see it. So they must have had an earlier time yep. show in New York or whatever. But they were immensely impressed. Two things. One, you mentioned Batman Begins at the very end of it. This this was something really interesting when I was reading about the end of Batman Begins. Christopher Nolan was not really planning at the time on doing more than just that movie. He was just going to do Batman Begins. He was going to give him this you know, this reboot of the origin story and focus in on this story. 
he wasn't really planning on too much beyond that. I mean, and Batman Begins was good. It, it was pretty good. And yet, it wasn't smashing. It I, was, I would beg I don't remember. I, I don't remember really it being, good. I don't remember it being smashing in terms of box office, in terms of, oh my gosh, this you, you have to go see this. It was a good movie. It was a good Batman movie. It, it didn't captivate quite the way that The Dark Knight would end up doing. Um, but it's hard to do that on the scale that The Dark Knight did. I mean, Batman Begins was a good movie. My brothers regard Batman Begins as the best. And, I mean, that's that's their view of it. Um, but it, it was a very good movie. And yet that ending there with the Joker card that, that you flip over, that was more of just a a kind of general Batman Easter egg than anything. It wasn't... Kicking something down the road for maybe we'll pick it up. Maybe right. Maybe we won't. As a maybe. As kind of a fun thing to do at the end of the movie. It wasn't supposed to be directly tied into a future movie but then screenplay work began on the dark knight and then christopher nolan was convinced he was like okay let's go let's go in on this he was just coming off of doing the prestige he had focused on that in between doing batman begins and the dark knight there was a three-year gap between those movies 05 and then 08 so there was time to get revitalized and to think of a new plan and that's where the having the influence of the joker and the direction that they decided to go with the Joker was so big. And the direction that they decided to go with Batman was so big, which we'll get into here. I, don't, the, I almost think before you to get way into The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight was the best of the trilogy, in my opinion, No too. question. In my opinion as well. No question about it. But he really did strike first with Batman Begins, and that came out in 05. And I think to really understand what happened there, you need to look at the larger context. And I don't just mean the Batman franchise. But starting with that, you have to go back eight years, 1997, Batman and Robin. That was the last Batman movie to come out before Batman Begins. And we all know the story. That destroyed the franchise. Now... They had the comic book movie that was Batman Mask of the Phantasm, and they had the Mark Hamill inversion of the of the Joker character. Yes. And that was doing fine on the small screen, but it was designed for kids and Batman fans that were, you know, probably too old to watch the show, but that show was smart, even for little kids. So there was still something there. Batman Begins brought back what was considered a dead franchise. And with a lot of skepticism going into it. I remember, I think it was one of the Lord of the Rings movies I was going to go see, and one of the previews before it was Batman Begins. Wow, okay. And people were watching it, oh my gosh, they're doing another Batman movie? That was the initial reception. Now you think about that looking back now, oh yeah, this is going to be on. That was not the feeling. People were waiting for this movie to suck like Batman and Robin. That's just it, because Batman and Robin was still in the palette from 1997 oh, yeah. or whenever it, it was. was. That it, bad. it wasn't that far removed from how bad that was. It so. was almost a decade, but it was that bad. Because, it is, when you think of all-time yep. bombs, it's on the top five. It really was that bad. You still think about it. Well, yep. and even at that point, who's Christopher Nolan? He had, he'd established himself, but only to a point. Memento was probably the biggest movie he had done to yes. that point. And it was a very unusual movie. You know, it's a movie told in reverse. So, now that's the Batman franchise. Think even beyond that. Look at James Bond, for example. A lot of movies, James Bond is a pretty good template of this, had gone bigger and bigger and bigger. You're trying to top what had come before. So by the time they come to, say, Die Another Day in 2002, 
it was fantastically over the top. It was a little, it needed to, everything needed to get some air let out of the balloon and come back to the ground and come back to reality. And I could almost argue that Batman Begins was one of the first to really do that. Yes. Although, in 2004, another comic book movie, The Punisher, came out. Excessively violent, but very grounded. And it was really good. And in a lot of ways, I don't think Nolan took any influence from it, but it could be perhaps credited as the first superhero movie to really get its feet on the ground. And Batman Begins went from that direction. Batman Begins... Took the essence of what made Batman really good and started to build a groundwork for that, yeah. and that was that that Batman as a superhero is a grounded character, plausible, entirely plausible. plausible. Yes, and yet, and yet, when you watch Batman Begins, there are elements of it that that are comic book in oh, yeah. their nature, with the way that they frame Gotham City, with the way that they that they worked in what Scarecrow could do, and and some of those things, they made it. A little bit more of a comic book-esque movie, and yet one that still felt grounded. But The Dark Knight took that to an, another oh, yeah. level, and he, we'll get to that in a moment. But, he broke ground with Batman Begins and perfected it yes. with 2008's Dark Knight. Now, with The Dark Knight, it's, it is important to point this out, too. With the build-up to The Dark Knight, there was palpable buzz about just how good this movie was going to be. I, I remember, I remember when there was talk that the Dark Knight was coming. I was like, "Oh, there's going to be a sequel for for the previous Batman movie," and they're bringing the Joker in. That's big, and they're bringing Heath Ledger in as the Joker. That's that's something. And then you started hearing stories about how Heath Ledger had been locking himself away for a month or, or something along those lines to lose to, his mind to essentially lose himself in the Joker character and to do that. And then in post-production, you hear the news about Heath Ledger's passing. And that suddenly took the Dark Knight to, more so. to another level in terms of, we have to see this. Because then there was the element of Heath Ledger's death. And and that this was one of, that the, this is the final time you're going to get to see him on screen. A guy who had been a, a pretty popular actor, who had done some very popular movies. Um, a guy who had build a following in terms of people who really enjoyed seeing his work and seeing the way that he poured himself into his craft with what whatever the work was. You said the word right there, craftsmanship. Uh, you expand on that word. Um, you know, Batman movies were about the characters and they were um, comic-y and over the top. Then comes Christopher Nolan. People don't know much about him. Memento, interesting movie. Batman Begins, wow. Then he he put out a movie in between each one of those, and in this case, it was uh, not The Illusionist. Oh, give it to me here. Between the Batman Begins yeah, and the Dark the Knight? Yeah, the magician one. What oh, I just that? brought it up, The Prestige. Prestige, thank you. This was craftsmanship also. You had Christian Bale and Michael Caine from the Batman movies back in it. But it was a well-told, well-crafted, well-acted movie. So now you've got somebody who's bringing out that craftsmanship in Batman. And you've got great actors like Heath Ledger that was really coming up. He was the heartthrob, but he had a lot of talent. Let's see these guys go untamed. And let's watch a real craftsmanship story here. You're starting to become aware by the time The Dark Knight comes out of what Nolan is capable of doing with his craft. And then, of course, the story about Heath Ledger, uh, he had just finished work on the movie, uh, was starting yeah, work on another Yeah, this was January one. of 2008. Yeah, he had shot all of his scenes. They didn't have to come in with body doubles or anything like that. 
uh, everything he needed to do for that movie was completely done, and it was shortly after that that he did pass away. He was working on another movie at that point. Yep. Um, so it was, and that's another big thing. We'll see this guy and what's going to wind up being his farewell performance. And it won an Oscar in posthumously, yes. too. And then, and then you get to the movie itself, and Epic. As, as the Joker said in the movie, you've changed things forever. That line fit for the movie, too. Do want to make mention, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Great place to go catch a movie. Don't forget about their $5 movie nights on Tuesdays. It's the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2, just across from the airport. You've changed things forever. The movie certainly did that. I mean, this was this was a comic book movie. This was a superhero movie unlike any other with the way that it got... it, it With the way the realism was incorporated in. And yet, realism pitted against absolute anarchy. Do you want to watch things get totally spun out of control and you wonder how is there going to be a solution to it? The Dark Knight is that movie and it's be, it's because of the Joker. And the way the Joker and his it's the Joker unhinged essentially is is what the Dark Knight is. I mean, the Joker in the comic books and in the previous Batman, there is there's a craziness about him with the way that he does things. In The Dark Knight, it, it's like they double down on that craziness. And suddenly everybody else have to has to respond to this. And suddenly everybody else has their own personal ethos put up against the Joker and his total and complete insanity of the way he does things, including Batman. I mean, and we see that with Harvey Dent, too, and and that's at the center of the movie. That's what I think is the heartbeat of the movie, is that struggle between good and evil, and yet it's good that has to make some evil choices or has to make some hard choices up against what their, their perception of good is in order to try to maintain on the track that they're on. For Batman, it's, are you going to break your one rule? In order to satisfy the Joker, are are you going to kill or have to go to that extent in order to, um, in order to satisfy his demands here, or are you going to find a way to stay on a straight line track and not get get caught up in this? Harvey Dent has to face the same choice as well, and yet his own personal ethos they toe the line much more to the extent where suddenly and it gets alluded to throughout the movie. He makes the turn and makes the turn to Two-Face then and suddenly he gets lost and as he says later, we've been trying to be decent men in an indecent time and he goes over that edge. Well, he was when he was Harvey Dent before the incident becoming Two-Face, he was Gotham's White Knight. Yes. Batman is the Dark Knight. It's kind of flip side to the coin. Uh, but that coin in, in a lot of ways flips. No pun in, Actually, I guess pun intended since that's Harvey Dent's big thing, flipping the coin. But, you know, you've got a movie where basically a guy gets half his face melted off with very convincing CGI. It looked like an amazing makeup job, but it's all CGI. And with something as fantastical as that, it is still an exceptionally grounded movie because of how well they did it. You could take something as out there as that. How is this guy not in a burn unit? He should be suffering from all kinds of infection. It didn't matter. It was so... That's just it. It didn't it matter. It didn't matter. Yep. It was such a grounded movie that it's like, well, you know, everything else this movie is plausible. This could be too. Exactly. And the Joker's takeover of Gotham is it, it's just it's chilling to watch 
as it all unfolds. It starts on a small scale with going after a mob bank. And then the Joker basically uses that as leverage against the mob, who are, are facing a crackdown. And again, this is the, the towing the line nature of good of doing the right thing and yet maybe maybe doing the wrong thing for the right reasons of Batman and 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 uh, at the time Lieutenant Gordon, and then he becomes Commissioner Gordon, and then they bring Harvey Dent into the fold with this this trio trying to take down the mob and the way that they do it. But it's a deal with the devil for all of them. For Dent, he has to stay as Gotham's white knight or the the case he that he has face. against Gotham's corruption is going to completely, completely unravel because of the way he was able to bring them all in and the nature of which he did that. For, for Gordon, his deal with the devil is working in his own separate crime unit that he's able to have control over that works with... Batman, who's a vigilante, so that that's technically against the rules, and he's using cops who are clearly very corrupted, and Dent knows this, and Gordon knows this, and yet Gordon knows this is the only way he can have the control that he needs to fight the crime, and for Batman, he's towing the vigilante line the whole way, and the Joker completely takes all of those, those uncomfortable scaffoldings and he wipes them out. And he, he attacks them at the very core with the way that he gets after them. And it forces those characters to make those tough choices. When in the end, you really do wonder, did they even make the right choice or not? And and for the right reasons or not? And all of the characters can be questioned with their motivations and the things that they did. I was reading... Well, and don't, don't skip over this. You've got Bruce Wayne's deal with the devil. I mean, really what he's doing as far as this movie goes... Is not so much to avenge his parents anymore as much as it is for love. He wants Rachel. He wants well, a life. That, and he's pushing his own personal limits, he's like you said. Pushing his own limits. He wants to have a relationship with Rachel Dodds. He can't do that so long as he's Batman. Batman if has can, no limits. You do, sir. Yeah. That's what he gets told by Alfred. If you can take down the mob, then Batman's workload is going to all but evaporate. Let the cops take care of the rest. He can do this one last thing, and then he can be free of Batman and you know go on doesn't happen because no. she gets blown up. There's that, and she had become that close with Harvey Dent as well. Yeah. She, had, she had moved on, and like she had told him, she came to a point where she realized that there could never be a time where Bruce could be without being Batman because he had gotten so immersed in, in doing that and fighting for the city and, and working to that extent. Something she had encouraged him to do in Batman Begins. And yet in The Dark Knight, it had become too much where he had become immersed in it. And suddenly, that, that had become his primary focus. To the extent where he had to make some tough personal choices. She being one of them. And then also, when he brings in that sonar technology that, um, that Lucius Fox had. And he expands upon it. Too much and, power for one man to wield. That's right. And yet he had to go across that that ethical line in order to be able to try to bring down a guy like the Joker, who had, had pushed things to the extent that they did. And for the Joker, it was never about winning. It was never about winning. Like he said at the end, it was about completely upsetting the order and completely shaking the foundation of Gotham to the point where, at the very end, Bruce has to make that choice. As Batman, he has to choose to become the villain. Either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. 
I can do those things. And he had to in order to try to maintain the public eye of things. And on, with the support of Gordon, who knew the truth but knew what was going on and knew that he would have to chase essentially his ally. It's just it's brilliantly constructed in the way that that these characters have to make difficult choices. And honestly, for all of the characters, they they do make poor choices. They, oh, yeah. they make wrong choices. Batman does. Gordon does. I mean, you you see all that. It, it's not just the the villains who make who make the uh, who are are doing these these dastardly things. For the guys who are trying to do the right thing, they have to sometimes make some very very difficult choices or make some ethical choices for for reasons that they believe to be good, and yet. Sometimes those things end up falling in on them. And another thing you got to remember, this is the genius of the Dark Knight in particular. It's not, if you ever had that explanation, it's not what you say, it's the way you say it. It's not the story. It's the way the story is told. It is a lot of weaving threads. And they are each given their own attention, and they are they each get their spotlight at times. They each come to the surface when they need to. Yeah. It is so well woven. It is a very complex, not so much the story, but the character development. Harvey Dent's a huge character. In oh, the movie. absolutely. I, mean, I like the way that they put him front and center as much as they did. The way that they are presented, the way that the story is woven, and the way that he as a director, Christopher Nolan, weaves you through this. You do not feel lost. You might not get every nuance in the first viewing, but it, you don't miss anything either. And he really takes you through a very complicated journey. And all of that woven into, what is The Dark Knight, two and a half hours, something like that? It's yeah. a little on the longer and side. And yet, I still remember, I had to watch it a couple of times back again and again. And you pick up more each yeah. time. It's one of those movies that is, is rewarding great in that way. Very rewarding on repeat viewings. Um, but you don't feel like you missed anything either. You just understand it better the next time you see it. So that is maybe the true genius of the movie. Extremely well done, extremely well told, extremely well everything. Every, it was craftsmanship top to bottom. And yet it's craftsmanship with chaos at the center of it. Introduce a little chaos and, and look look what you get. And and some of the lines from from the Joker are just... I, I mean, they they cut to you like that, and it, it just it makes your your blood go cold a little bit with with the way that the Joker executes it. It's like watching somebody who's who's going crazy in Grand Theft Auto, and yet you're watching it play out on your screen, going, "This guy can't be contained." This guy, and, and yet, in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of him saying he's a dog chasing cars, he he really is just out there. To make a mess. Yeah. That that and that ultimately is his plan. And yet there's more to his plan than he would let on and that, that he would show. Um and, and in the end you get you get just I mean, it's just crazy the way that it all just kind of folds in on itself and you watch a city crumble and yet still watch a city make the right choices in the end, like with the boat choice that had to be made. I mean, that one prisoner, that prisoner um, from from Harvey Dent's more humanity. Yeah, from Harvey Dent's criminals. He's the one who maybe makes the the best choice of the entire movie. Who does make the best choice of the entire movie and shows more humanity than maybe anybody else. And he's a for all we know convicted for life. Yes. So now we got to talk. I think about the next stage, not just the Dark Knight, which perfected this, but the Dark Knight trilogy, which would complete, which would conclude in the Dark Knight Rises. Um, and while Dark Knight had a lot of positive things going for it, unfortunately the passing of Heath Ledger, but it only ramped up hype, 
Then you go to opening night of Dark Knight Rises, and then you get the movie theater shooting. And I was actually at one of those old opening night right. midnight screenings, completely. I was una- at a midnight screening too. Yeah. Completely unaware of what's going on across the country. And when you come home, you start reading about. Oh my, what? Yeah, you know. And so that hurt things. Christian Bale shows up to the hospital to you know see some of the victims of the shooting, and that changed a lot of things. And it and you know you don't want to di- you know dilute the message from that event, but it diluted interest in the movie. A lot of people didn't want to go see it because they didn't want to perhaps be a sitting goose in a movie theater. It changed a lot of things. There was that scene in um, oh, it was the movie where there's a, it was a gangster movie where there's a scene where they as a shootout in a movie theater. They refilmed that part of the movie so they wouldn't have that in the wake of the Aurora shooting. Um, so there was the real life, but then let's, let's focus a little more on, um, how it affected movies and not just the dark Knight, but James Bond or, um, the dark Knight trilogy after you had Batman begins in Oh five, James Bond gets rebooted in Oh six and casino Royale much more grounded than die another day. It basically went the route of the dark Knight trilogy. Right. And you look get at back, the, you get back to real stunts. You get back to, yeah. You get back to the gr- the ground floor of storytelling, and they also got back to the root of the character, and that's another thing that I substance think, over style, right? And I think that's another thing that's worth appreciating about the Dark Knight. The Dark Knight took Batman back to what he is at, at his core—a detective. Yeah, it took him back to his core of that, with trying to work on breaking down the mob and doing that. It it got it grounded back to a, a really good, intimate level, and yet it's taking place across a big scale across your screen. James Bond did that as well, beginning with Casino Royale. There are big set pieces in there. There are big things happening. And yet it brings you back to the ground level in terms of cutting to the core of the characters and the story and really focusing on doing those well with all of the the, the glamorous things around it that you see in terms of action set pieces. You know, and the nice thing about Batman, the 2000s was a really big time for reboots. And that's when the Dark Knight trilogy began in 05. But Batman, show me where it began. Obviously, it was a comic book. There is no one movie, no one TV series that is the beginning of things. You know, even Tim Burton's version was the most recent incarnation. It itself was a Adam reboot. West had been prior That was its own yeah. version. They'd had TV serials before that. And Batman continues with, well, allegedly still the Ben Affleck version of it, but who knows if that's going to continue or not. And somebody different than Ben Affleck. And somebody different from Ben Affleck will come along. Batman is going to go on forever, but the Dark Knight trilogy is going to be one that is going to be one of those benchmarks that people are going to try to get back to. So one of the nice things about reboots and refreshings is all the strings that hang off of when you start again that you can cut all that loose and start fresh, Batman Begins was the way to do it. But even when you look into where comic book movies have gone since then, and you can really put a lot of feathers in the hat of the Dark Knight trilogy, it started the superhero resurgence because it was about the time the Dark Knight came out that Iron Man came out. Yes. And they were doing it right, same year. And it was just a couple years before that that the Incredible Hulk didn't work out so well. Um, but they really started to get that figured out with Iron Man. And that was done very much in the vein, as over, as glitzy, showy as that was, it took a lot from what had been done with, uh, at that point, Batman Begins. I would say that The Dark Knight came at a very early point in the upward trajectory oh, of yeah. superhero movies getting to where they are today on our big screen. And I would say that The Dark Knight was a flashpoint where... If the trajectory had started maybe a little bit flatter, 
it started to point more steeply upward beginning with The Dark Knight because it was the highest grossing film of 2008. It's still one of the highest grossing movies of all time. And not only that, but critically, it was just a a smash, smash hit in every sense. The Dark Knight changed the Oscars. Yeah. Literally, it changed the Oscars. When it was not included in the Best Picture race, the uproar was so much so that they decided to change it then to incorporate 10 movies, and then they got it to a point of, we'll go between 5 and 10 movies. But a big part of why they made that change from the previous limitation of 5 was The Dark Knight, which many people said... Why did this not get a Best Picture nom? This is not only one of the best movies of the year, it's one of the best movies ever, and this goes beyond superhero movies. Yeah. It, it goes on to the general scale. But even so, if you're going to include the Best Picture category to 10 nominees, well, then it was the sixth best when we only had five nominees before. No, 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 no. There's The Academy has overlooked some great movies. Shawshank, great example. We brought it up before. Dark Knight, another one. You know, they overlooked it. The Academy, you can't look at them as the razor's edge. You just can't. No. A lot of them are, you know, past their peak kind of guys that slap themselves in the back. It's a boys club. And they try to avoid those tentpole blockbuster movies. They try to avoid them because they're not prestigious. They don't care. They care about the names. They care about, you know, the image rather than what's actually happening. This movie changed things. You know, you look at it now, 10 years later, in 2018. You've changed things. You've changed Forever. Things. Forever. It's it's different when you look at it from 2018, but at the time, it's just a Batman movie. It's a comic book movie. Yeah. I would think it's an easy argument now, but at the time, in 2009, when the Oscars for that previous year were coming out, they weren't looking at it like that. They knew it made bongo business, but the Avengers hadn't happened yet. The comic book boom that we're seeing now, that at some point will burst, it's huge. How many movies this year alone? are going to be comic book movies. Not to right. mention the Avengers Age of Ultron, one of the biggest box office movies ever. So they got it on on the upward move. Is, oh, yeah. Is what was happening. Not, not oh, only that. I think you were talking about Infinity War, think, weren't you? Well, and think of, yeah, that's what I, that's what I meant to say. You're right. Um, think of it like this. If you remember the way the old space shuttles used to launch, you had numerous rocket stages that were propelling that thing upward. Now, the launch had already happened, and then the Dark Knight came, and kaboom! Yes, because the X-Men had kind of gotten the yeah. ball rolling, and that's why I, I would say the trajectory was beginning. The X-Men had gotten the ball rolling, yeah. and you had the occasional movie like The Incredible Hulk, or if you go back to the 90s, you had the occasional Batman movie. Superhero movies were not the the commonplace thing no. that we are seeing like they are today. But the Dark Knight really began that, that trajectory upward. Iron Man was certainly helped by it too, but the Dark Knight took it to a completely another level well, when it of, came to the thought process and how well it did. Think even more so about the superhero movies that were coming out. You had X-Men 2, which was, in my opinion, the best of that first bunch. Then you had X-Men Last Stand, and fans were you know, disgusted by it because half the characters get killed off in it. Um, they kind of retconned it and fixed that, but still, I liked the movie. It was okay, but it was you know, it was what it was. I didn't like it. Superman Returns. Superman didn't throw one punch. He was right. sort of like an emo Superman. Then comes out Batman Begins, and they, perform that, they perfected it with The Dark Knight. Then take a look at what happened. The same guys that had a lot to do with The Dark Knight had a lot to do with Man of Steel. Uh, Christopher Nolan was a producer, David Goyer. These are people that helped make the Dark Knight trilogy. They wanted to take some of that Batman element and bring it into Superman with the with the Dark with the Man of Steel, which carried into Justice League and so forth. 
but in some cases to its detriment, I would say. Dark Knight is a dark movie because that's what Batman is, where Superman is a ray of light. He's sunshine. He's bold colors. They dim those colors to do more Batman, but, you know, it's the flip side of the same coin. They're completely polar opposites, but they tried to bring a little Batman into Superman. I don't think it would work even if you brought some Superman into Batman. They need to be on opposite sides of the spectrum. That's part of the appeal. Right. And that's where Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice failed. Indeed. Because it didn't that's part of it. It didn't work. And the DC universe is really struggling right now coming off the major success that was the Dark Knight trilogy. They're not carrying that baton much further right now except for wonder woman the mcu kicked off in 2008 the the marvel cinematic universe with with the coming of iron man which ran concurrent with the dark knight and it was propelled i think in a big way by the fact that the dark knight had success and i know that was dc that had a big influence i think on on marvel because it allowed for the the superhero movies suddenly were in the consciousness and not just of this is this is a fun movie to go see that that there could be some substance to this and and the MCU found their own direction that they went in terms of substance and in terms of of what they found as far as a formula there's clearly a formula with these marvel movies when you go yeah. see them there's clearly a formula that they that they rely on sprinkle in humor have good good set pieces a lot of action make it all tie together Let's let and let's churn the factory along, and they've done just that to this point. It got started at about that time, though, that the Dark Knight came and and got comic book movies and superhero movies not only in the spotlight but in the spotlight and to be taken seriously. Largely prior to the Dark Knight trilogy, superhero movies were they were fun to watch. They were popcorn. They were frosting with no cake. You know, it was a lot of sugary stuff. Turn off your brain and just watch some of these sights. You know, maybe the original Christopher Reeve Superman is a different story. That was a little deeper. It was, I think it was nominated for some Oscars, not just for visual effects. I think it was up for Best Picture. I might be wrong on that. Um, but they were very, very different. And then comes The Dark Knight. And this is not just that, but this is some substance. I mean, Batman doesn't show up till halfway through the movie. And the first half is really about a guy trying to find himself, if you want to put it that way, and you know Bruce Wayne getting the roots of what's going to become him. And it's an interesting story. You almost forget, oh yeah, this is supposed to be a Batman movie, and I haven't seen anything. You know that comes later. But you're so enraptured by the story. It was a good story. So you could show this to people that don't care about comic book movies, and they were so long as they didn't see the opening credits, you know, and realize it was a Batman movie, they wouldn't see it coming. And they'd fall in love with what was going to come after. So anything else that, that stands out when you look back 10 years ago to with the Dark Knight's coming, and even just thinking about the legacy of the movie, or just about the movie in general, Dave, is there anything else that really comes to mind or stands out for you when you think about those things? You know, one thing we didn't really touch on, this is a small, it's a small point, but, you know, there seems to be kind of a fraternity, not just with the guys that have played Batman, but the guys that have played the Joker. Now, Cesar Romero played him back in the 60s with Adam West, and he's gone. But Jack Nicholson's still around, and people were asking Nicholson about Heath Ledger. It usually works the other way around. Heath Ledger, you ever feel intimidated by Jack Nicholson? Now Jack Nicholson is having to kind of stand up on that Joker box to stand next to the likes of Heath Ledger. Crazy. Who thinks that's going to happen? And the fact, I mean, you hate to say it. I mean, you're certainly not using it from a marketing standpoint, but the fact that Heath Ledger died just after doing the role and won the Oscar for it, he can never be touched. Ever, ever, ever. 
Now, now, Dr. Parnassus, which was the movie he was filming after that, did come out. They came out with a way to work around his passing, having multiple actors play the same role. Um, so technically, that's his last role. But this was the last one he completed, and he won an Oscar for it and probably changed himself in a lot of ways. Because I don't think locking yourself in a hotel room for a month to come up with a way to lose your mind for this character, that takes something to come down from. And maybe that perhaps had a little influence on his passing. Who knows? But to see the work that he left behind was really, really something. This is one of those performances that um, will stand the test of time and will go down with the greats. You know, the, you know, Cagney and Stewart and Ledger. Yes, he belongs on that pedestal. Yeah, and that made it tough for Jared Leto then to follow up because, because a completely you got those questions. Take. Yeah, yep, completely different take, but it has to be a different take. I mean, well, it, it's, and now you got Joaquin Phoenix that's going to be on that role with wow. the new Joker movie. Yeah, I could see him doing some interesting things too. Yeah, you really could because he's he's that kind of actor who's creative with what he does. Um, the Dark Knight. One of the cool things that I that I liked about the Dark Knight in the build up to it was when they did the the preview in in IMAX I, I think it was before I am legend they they did a six right. they did a special five six minute preview where they they showed the entire opening scene much like they did with the Dark Knight Rises and the the plane heist at the beginning they do the bank heist in, in the, and they showed that in IMAX as a way to to pre to preview the movie a long preview yeah long preview you see the entirety of that scene. As it plays out, and it's a great scene to open the movie. But it that, makes you wonder where it's going and what's next. Right. That heist was, I mean, that was such a great way to not only preview the movie, if you got a chance to see that in theaters, but it was a great way to... Set up the character. To of the set Joker. up the characters. And it was such a great scene, too. They they shot it so so well with the way that, that you come in and you get into the action and with the music and the way that they set the timing of the music up. And yes, the the mystery surrounding the Joker. It's it's all framed out there and then he lo and behold well, he's, got a he's bank, the last one standing. He's got a bank team of what, ten guys or whatever, and each one has the job of killing one of the other guys so that no one else is going to walk away with anything other than the Joker, but they only start to realize it's too late. That sets up the character that's coming. It's diabolical, it's chaotic, but it's also smart. Yes. And you get some really cool work that they did in terms of filming it that comes later on, too. Like like in Hong Kong, when, when Batman goes yeah. and, he, and he takes out Lau and, and is able to swipe him and bring him back for uh, and extradite him back to the U.S., Really, really well done, the way that they set that up uh, amidst amidst the city there. And this was cool, too. I was reading Polygon has done a, a great series of articles surrounding the Dark Knight's 10-year anniversary. And I was reading about the truck flip that they did during the, the Batman-Joker chase scene when, when Harvey Dent is in custody. And, and then they're trying to protect him from the Joker. I, I loved reading about the truck flip that they did where Batman uses the bat pod and he strings up the truck that the Joker's driving and it totally flips. They actually did skill. that stunt. They actually did that. They had a stunt guy who was driving that truck. They did it in one take. They were good to go. They had a little mini explosion that they were able to get on the underside of the truck to be able to get it to flip over its back like like it did. It was remarkable the way that the was, way that they pulled that off. That you watch it, and maybe you don't think too much about it, but then you think about it. It's like 
That was a really well-executed stunt when you realize that that was a real stunt. And that's something you don't see too much in, say, the Avengers movies right now. Some of it is legitimate. A lot of it is CGI. CGI. But when you can do it, James Bond is doing a lot of this. You're starting to see a lot of action movies, Fast and the Furious. You're starting to see very little amounts of CGI and a lot more. What can they practically do for real life on set? Because it's so much more believable. Physics exists. You don't have to doubt the physics because you're watching it actually happen convincingly so. Exactly. And and I I did enjoy, too, there are just some images in that movie that stick with you. Like, there are a couple of them in, in sequentially. After after Rachel Dawes is killed, what happens after in terms of visually, like, that's a point in the movie where things just go nuts, and they, they flip on their head and they fall apart. And there's that point where they strike the music, and you've got the Joker leaning out of that cop car, just waving his hair around mm. in the wind, as he's be- being peddled along by one of his goons in a cop car. And it's such a striking image. It's beautifully shot the way they did that. And then they have another one just a couple moments later of Batman in the rubble with the coin. Almost thinking, and, uh, another Another really gripping image that you get there. And it's at a point in the movie where everything just kind of flips on its head and totally falls apart. And they, they got some beautifully crafted images that were in there too that that really struck a chord and and they come at a, a point in the movie where i mean prior to that you had had uh, you had elements of a superhero movie that had been taking place you had elements of okay i i think i know where this is going to go and they they've got solutions to this well now everything has totally changed everything has gone really south and i mean even prior to that they they kill the co- they kill the commissioner they kill the judge the joker does both those things and you're like Whoa, this Nobody's is kind of different. And then Gordon presumably gets killed, and you're like, this is this is going nuts. And then he, it's realized that he's okay, and then things turn again. It's it's such a roller coaster of a movie emotionally where you think you've got it figured out on how this is all going to play out, and it's like, wait a minute, they're killing characters now. Yeah. Or presumably killing characters. Or, oh, man. They, they killed game. that character. Like all of that adds up to it, it's such an emotional experience when you watch the movie, and it's so different that way. Like with the with the Avengers with Infinity War, at the end of the movie, it didn't really impact me, and I don't think it really impacted other people because it's like these characters are coming back. You know that they're going to come back. They're they're going to do future movies. This this is not making an impact. Well, maybe even, the next movie will be. Well, like and that. even more so, they promoted it as this is the end all be all. But right. we know there's another Avengers movie coming out next year. Right. So it was a cheat, you know, in a way. They didn't cheat this one. You knew there were going to be more. You knew there was going to be another Dark Knight movie. You know, and interesting also, there was a theme to go with each one of those movies in the trilogy. The first one, Batman Begins, was all about fear. You had the Scarecrow. Yes. The last one was about pain. Batman having to overcome things. Dark Knight, escalation. Chaos. It ca- and yep. not just chaos, but escalation. It kept getting bigger on itself. How much bigger can it get? And it just keeps getting bigger until it all, you know, not I don't mean collapse in a bad way. It finally collapses in on the Joker and the city crumbles and all that kind of collapse. But it gets as big as it can get before it finally crumbles to its conclusion in a great satisfying way. Crumbles is probably not the great way to put it. It finally just boom, collapses in on itself in a good way, in all the best ways possible. And that's probably the good way to really explain that movie, Escalation. Some of the best movies and TV shows over the past several years have been ones 
that have followed that same manner. Take take Breaking Bad, for instance. Yeah. Escalation, big part of Breaking Bad and the way that that show plays out. And you watch characters escalate and you watch them, them change and mold over time. This is a two and a half hour movie and yet you see that play out right before your eyes within this seemingly confined space. You see that happen, especially with Harvey Dent and the way that he changes and with the escalation but you see that with batman too and you see the choices that he has to make that come with that so well even more so pick any franchise you want there's they are very much like a bottle each movie is like a bottle the characters essentially are where they always are regardless of how the movie ends when the next one begins they're the same old guy the dark knight trilogy changed that batman at the end of the dark knight is almost a broken man at the end of this so you see him in the dark knight rises he's not Playboy, Bruce Wayne, he's a recluse, largely because of the events of this movie. The city is still reeling for the events of that movie. Everybody, But still held together because of the sacrifice he made. Yeah, but I mean, it's not a bottle movie. The, any Batman movie that was in that timeline anyway, that went after that movie, everybody was a different person at the start of the next one. It wasn't like, well, here we pick up what we're all familiar with and start again with a whole new fun adventure. It's looking at broken people. You change things forever. I've, no I've mentioned that. Back. I've mentioned that line a couple of times. It's a great line when you think about the impact. And accurate. The, yeah, very accurate line when you think about the impact that the Dark Knight had and still has. It, oh, it is a movie that will stand the test of time. So one thing to take away from the podcast is it's fun when you can go back and look at a moment that really is a pivoting point. And in the Dark Knight in particular, but the Dark Knight trilogy specifically you can see how it all kind of hinges around that and other movies and other franchises tv included how things were before and how things were after i mean the dark knight and i'm trying to give it as much third person perspective as i can the dark knight did to the 2010s what star wars did to the 1970s star wars changed everything the dark knight trilogy in particular changed everything it is not an understatement to say that. It's not an overstatement to say that that is the case. You watch, that's 10 years ago, and everything has been different since, and where we're going to go from here until the next benchmark comes. It's hard to tell. Yeah. But The Dark Knight had that kind of impact, and it's It's pretty amazing to look back on 10 years later and see just what it had done. And that it, stood, it, it will stand the test of time in that way, and that even as we en- we're entering into a time that we are currently in where superhero movies are all the rage, the Dark Knight still stands head and shoulders above them. And there have been some great ones that have come. Uh, seriously, that is not to take away from movies like Logan, like no. Black Panther, like, like Wonder Woman that have come along and have been really terrific movies and really influential movies in their own way. But man, the Dark Knight... The Dark Knight started it all and you keep and for hear- so many different reasons. You keep hearing from you know the people that are putting these movies together, like Patty Jenkins, Wonder Woman, and uh, John Favreau with the Avengers. We got to you know they always bring up the Dark Knight, what they did in the Dark Knight, and we're going to try to take a little bit of that and from that movie and put a little of that in. The- it's become the benchmark. It's become the little secret ingredient that Christopher Nolan came up with and perfected and really perfected with the Dark Knight that they're trying to sprinkle into the other movies. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, like with Superman. Um, But boy, it has been an influence like you wouldn't believe. It's about sprinkling the right elements for your movie. Yeah, knowing what to and what not to. That's right. 
Rickonick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Great place to go catch a movie. I'm certainly looking forward to doing that. Hopefully soon, uh, I'd like to go and get a chance to check out Mission Impossible Fallout. I'll loan you I'm the thinking. next one. I saw it last night. It was yep. good. I got to keep on picking my way through the, the ones preceding this one so I can get to that point. But I'm looking forward to hopefully getting a chance to go see it at some point. Nothing like going to see a summertime movie, which The Dark Knight was one when it came out um, July 18th uh, in its particular year. 14th was when it had its premiere, the 18th then, wide release. But nothing quite like going to see a summertime movie. Go see a summer movie. By this point, most of the big ones are out now. There's some good ones yet to come to finish out August, and then we turn the corner with fall. Going to be a good one to go see, but go check out a movie, superhero or otherwise. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. This has been Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, and we will see you at the movies.